Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Lee Zacharias about her novel, Across the Great Lake. It's the winter of 1936, and Fern Halverson has just turned five, when her father, the captain of a transport vessel, announces that he's taking her with him on his next voyage across Lake Michigan. The consequences of that journey still reverberate in Fern 80 years later when she tells her story. But the reasons behind her father's decision are clear from the first page. We went to the ice. That was the year my mother died, but I do not remember her. What I remember is the ice, everywhere I looked. A world made of ice, and then the fire. But first there were the voices. Get up, he said. I can't, she said. You mean you won't? I can't. Was I listening outside the closed door? Surely my mother taught me better. That told me that eavesdropping was not something a polite little girl would do. Such a strange word, eavesdropping. Did I know it then? Was I already a bad girl? Perhaps she despaired of me, I don't know. We got stuck in the ice, there was a storm, and while we were gone, my mother died. My father was not a man of words, and now that so many years have passed, there is no one left to ask whether I was ever a good girl, a girl who might have deserved love or not. There's other women lost a child. You don't know. I know enough. A cloud of silence seemed to thicken, though perhaps they only lowered their voices. Perhaps I simply couldn't hear them. And now, please join me in welcoming Lee Zacharias. Hi, Lee. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me today. Thank you. I'm delighted. Uh, You've written three novels, including Across the Great Lake, as well as two collections of shorter pieces, one fiction, the other not. You're a photographer and an emerita professor of English with an impressive list of achievements and awards. Tell us a bit about how you got started in fiction writing, about those earlier works, and how the photography and writing intersect, if they do. I probably started writing when I was about 12 years old. I was a big fan of the girls' mystery series and especially girls' boarding school books. Uh, I didn't have a sister. I didn't have a particularly happy home life. And so the idea of boarding school was wonderful. And so everything I wrote around that time was very derivative of that stuff. And my mother happened to find one of my manuscripts that I'd stashed underneath my mattress. And it happened to be about a girl who had a very rocky relationship with her mother. And that put an early end to my writing career, as you can imagine. So I didn't take up writing again until I was in college. And then after college, real life kind of got in the way, job, uh, putting a husband through his PhD program and so on. So I didn't start writing seriously, I would say, until I was in my mid-20s. I started with short stories because I think that's where most 
fiction writers begin. And then at a certain point, I was writing a story that didn't want to end, that turned into my first novel. And from then on, my ideas came to me in longer form. So I never went back to the story. I was writing novels, and it took me too long to finish my uh, second novel. I was directing the writing program, teaching full-time, editing a literary journal, and had a baby. And so I didn't have a lot of writing time. And the market changed a great deal during the time that I was writing that book. I had sold both of my first books on first submission, and I thought, that's just the way it works. And it didn't work that way for my second novel. And so I did write a third novel, but when that was taking too long to sell, I decided to turn to nonfiction. I had written a little bit of nonfiction during the time I was writing a novel. I'd been invited to write an essay for a special issue of the now-defunct journal Antaeus. And I so much enjoyed being able to reach to that shelf of my experience or that drawer, because when you write a novel, you invent a world, and then you've got to live in that world for as long as it takes you to finish the novel. And I just really enjoyed the eclectic nature of writing essays. And I probably would not have come back to fiction, but I was researching material on the railroad car ferries and Lake Michigan for an essay about what the town Frankfurt, Michigan, which I visited when I was around 12 years old just once, had meant to me. And I couldn't let the material go. I just kept reading more and more and more and finally, I thought, there's got to be a novel in this. So that's how I happened to come back to fiction. So um, that's really interesting. So you found the research first, and that led you to the story. And, and how did you develop the story within, um, uh, you know, from this research, the story that became Across the Great Lake? I wrote the first line, We Went to the Ice, with no idea of who was speaking. And in the course of the first chapter, I learned it was a five-year-old girl whose father was taking her across the lake with him because, unknown to both of them, their mo her mother was dying. Uh, her mother was just very sick and very depressed and couldn't take care of her. I think I realized from the beginning, that it couldn't be one of the sailor's stories because I wouldn't know what that story was. Uh, and I didn't want it to be just a man-against-nature kind of thing. And the little girl offered so much opportunity to get in trouble on a ship, plus everything would be new to her. She would be looking at it uh, in a very wide-eyed way, whereas the sailors would be familiar, it would be old hat to them. So the story really grew out of the setting as opposed to having a preconceived notion of story and then setting it somewhere. Was it difficult to write um, from the perspective of a five-year-old girl? I mean, you do a really wonderful job. I believe that she was very young. 
Well, thank you. I, um, I didn't find it hard. What I did find hard is that she's telling the story 80 years later. And I wanted her as much as possible in the chapters that narrate the journey and that narrate uh, a little bit farther on in her childhood to recreate the sensibility that she would have had at the time. But there are also reflective chapters where it's very much the 85-year-old woman who is thinking about uh, what this experience has, has meant and how it's affected her whole life. And so the difficulty for me was in keeping those voices separate and figuring out where they had to blend just a little bit. Right, I can imagine that. So tell us about Fern as a character. Um, what does it mean for her as a five-year-old? Um, because if you tell us too much about what it meant for her as an 85-year-old, you might give away things you don't want to give away. Um, what does it mean for her as a five-year-old to go on this voyage with her dad? Well, she's a, she's a very plucky and very adventurous little girl, so she's really excited about being on this ship. The scariest thing about writing the novel for me was realizing that I'd put her on a ship with 28 sailors and they were going to have to talk. And I've never been around a bunch of sailors in my life and uh, had no idea how they they spoke. So a former student of mine who is from Wisconsin said, just have them tell Ole and Lena jokes. And the first time a sailor opens his mouth to tell one of these Scandinavian ethnic jokes that I had to look up online, all of their voices came to me, and that seemed very natural. And she's really excited to be with these guys, uh, to hear them talk, to hear their stories. And she's also a rather bossy little girl, and she's privileged. and. Her privilege really informs the way she thinks and acts as she's a little girl. She does, as an adult, she does realize what harm that has done. But as a little girl, she's just used to getting her way. She is a captain's daughter, not a daughter of an ordinary seaman. So she's kind of a member of the elite. Yes. Um, and of course, she wouldn't recognize, she would just take it for granted as a five-year-old. There's no way that she would um, imagine that anybody had a different kind of life. Exactly. And she she has some thoughts about this young deckhand, Al, that she becomes very close to. He's from the town that's not only on the wrong side of the harbor, but literally on the wrong side of the tracks because of the, the rail yard is right there where the ship docks. And he's from the town where the ordinary um, seamen would live, where the workers would live, where she's from the town where the bank presidents and so on would would live. And she sometimes thinks things like... He, he's had polio, and she thinks, well, maybe that's something you get from living in Alberta because she just hasn't known anyone who had polio. So, so she does have these thoughts that she's not really conscious of as 
snobbish. Although she does start to wake up a little bit to the possibilities as she gets to know him better. Um, let's skip over and talk about him, and then we'll come back and talk about her parents. Um, tell us about Alf. What, what does he want in life, and what kind of person is he? What makes him relate to Fern? Well, he hasn't been much of a student. He's dropped out of school. What he really wants to do is play the piano. And in my mind, he's a very talented pianist with little or no opportunity. And it's the Depression. His father is an oiler on another ship for the same line, and his father pushes him into going to work on the boats because the ferry system up there provided work, even in the Depression. It protected that area a little bit from some of the worst effects of the Depression. So he's been pushed into working on the boat. Uh, the, one of the other sailors has started a rumor that he's gay. He has a kind of uncanny duty. And, of course, everybody treats the new boy on a ship badly, uh, although some of the men start to come around as he begins to prove himself. But he's drawn to her because her father has asked him to look out for her. And she's enchanted with him. He, she even says at one point that he was her first crush. And so she's a kind of buffer between him and the men who don't respect him and don't, don't treat him well. And so that's how they develop their, their bond. And also they find this stowaway kitten together. And that has to be a secret because the bosun is a very superstitious man who believes that cats, women, and preachers are all bad luck on a boat. So they can't let the bosun find the kitten. So tell us a bit about, um, Fern's father. How do you see him as a personality and his role in the story? He is a very reticent person. He's, he's a good man. Uh, he is authoritative. He used to being in charge because he's a captain. And he has a certain air of distance about him. He, he loves his daughter, and she realizes that he loves him. But she says that she thinks they didn't know what to expect of each other. He hasn't been home all that much. He's been out on the lake a great deal. So they haven't spent a lot of time together and certainly not a lot of time alone together. I think in some ways he's typical of fathers of that era in that the mother does the parenting and the father does the breadwinning. Yeah, I had that impression about him. And, you know, I'm old enough to have grown up in a period when that was still the norm. And so I, I do get the impression that he, although his heart is definitely in the right place, he's a little bit uncomfortable with the whole, you know, even things like when he has to pack to take her away. Um, I, I definitely got the impression that this was new to him and you could imagine him sort of throwing clothes into the suitcase and this kind of thing. Yes, he puts her leggings on backwards because she's, uh, well, he's just not used to dressing a little girl. 
So he leaves behind his wife. And as you mentioned, uh, his wife is very sick um, and depressed about being sick. Um, can you talk a bit about that element about of the novel? I mean, f- at five, Fern obviously doesn't recognize what's going on, although she's mostly sensitive to the tension. But what does it tell us about their relationship? Well, she has, she has had a stillbirth. So she has both a very serious postpartum depression, which I don't think people really recognized as a thing back then. And it's compounded by the fact that she's grieving over the fact that uh, her baby was born dead and that she's been told she can't have any more children. She also, unknown to herself or to her husband, has a postpartum infection that will kill her. He he thinks she's just a little bit down because she's had uh, a stillbirth, but that she'll snap out of it. So when he leaves her, uh, he really doesn't know that she's dying or how sick she is. And he's he's not a man who's really sensitive to feelings. He doesn't talk about feelings. He He's very reserved, and so he really doesn't realize how serious her depression is, as well as not realizing that she has a physical problem. So he goes off onto the lake, and the lake is almost a character in the story. You know, it it has um, it has a kind of personality of its own. Tell us about that. I was amazed to discover how dangerous it was, um, and yet these boats went out at regular intervals, cutting through the ice. So was I. I started researching uh, the ferries because I remembered the call of the foghorn from when I had visited this town at the age of 12 and thought it was the most beautiful place I'd ever seen because I grew up at the industrial south end of the lake. Um, And so no matter what direction you looked, there were mills belching smoke. And this is a very beautiful part of Lake Michigan's shoreline. And uh, so I started reading a history of the railroad car ferries and was immediately plunged into this world of tricky currents perilous shoals, uh, fierce storms, and really had no idea when I started reading how very dangerous the Great Lakes, and especially Lake Michigan, are to navigate. Uh, The Manitou Passage, which they go through, is something akin to the graveyard of the Atlantic, which is off of the North Carolina coast where I live. Yeah, they um, there's this whole um, wonderful background of superstitions and legends and so on, especially about the Manitou Passage. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Um, Frederick Stonehouse has two books, uh, one called Haunted Lake Michigan and another, another one called Haunted Great Lakes. And I, I took some of the legends that the bosun particularly tells uh, from some of the actual stories that circulate up there. It seems as if 
There is no such thing as a ship or a lighthouse that doesn't have a ghost. There's something about edges, those places where water meets land that seems to attract restless spirits. And so it seems natural, especially because sailors are very superstitious in general, it seems natural to bring all of these stories in that they tell, and it also seemed inevitable that this ship would have a ghost. There is a, a railroad car ferry museum in Manistee, Michigan, that I went through many times, and you could actually rent one of the passenger cabins to stay on the ship overnight. There's no staff there. You'd be by yourself. And I thought, what a great thing to do to research this novel. And I was in the process of booking my room on the phone when I happened to say, oh, by the way, does the ship have a ghost? And the answer was, depends on who you talk to. And I went, oh, no, never mind. I'm going to stay somewhere else. Uh, so it it did seem that it would be very likely that this ship would have a ghost, although I was more than 20 drafts into the novel before I realized who the ghost was. Well, it's, I mean, it's not surprising that sailors would be superstitious uh, because they're essentially facing down the elements that are completely outside their control. And in this particular winter, the situation on Lake Michigan is dreadful, right? It's basically solid ice that they're going through. Yes. I, I knew that I wanted to set the book before there was radar, but I wasn't sure exactly what year I wanted. And when I found out that 1936 was the coldest winter on record uh, for years and years and years, I decided that that would be my year. So can you tell us the legend of the Manitou Islands, since Manitou is a kind of recurring motif in the story? Yes. Uh, this is an Ojibwe legend that would have been almost like a bedtime story for all of the kids who lived up there. Uh, according to this legend, a mother bear and her two cubs swam to escape a forest fire in Wisconsin. They swam all the way across Lake Michigan, but the cubs were tired and they lagged behind. So when the mother arrived on the Michigan shore, she climbed the steep bluff to watch out for her cubs. And what she saw was the two of them drown just offshore. And the the uh, Ojibwe Great Spirit, whose name was Manitou, turned the cubs into the North and South Manitou Islands. And, of course, the Manitou Passage is the passage that's between those islands and the mainland. And then he covered the mother bear who dies of grief with a blanket of sand to create Sleeping Bear Dune which is now a national lakeshore. And Fern is really obsessed with this story as a girl because she doesn't understand why the mother wouldn't have turned around and saved the cubs. And then, of course, the story comes back at the end because 
one of the first things you learn as a writer is that whatever you put in a book, you need to bring back. You have to use something that you decide to use at least twice. But don't you find also that those decisions, especially the early on decisions, can be so revelatory of characters and themes and things? I mean, I never know what the theme is until I finish, but a lot of it comes in those early images of, you know, early decisions of whether or not a character has parents or something. Absolutely. And you often don't realize the implications of those decisions as you're making them, but you begin to understand what the consequences of those decisions are as you write on and as you revise. Yeah, especially as you revise. <laughs> yeah, especially as you revise, that's for sure. So um, so the Man of Two Islands and that story, which is tragic but lovely as well, um, you know, the ship is also called the Man of Two, and Fern's teddy bear is called Man of Two. Um, so uh, what, uh, what are the resonances there? Well, she has named her teddy bear for the cubs in the legend. She hasn't named it after her father's ship. And her father's ship is called the Manitou because so many things up there are called Manitou, and Manitou was the Ojibwe great spirit. Uh, and the Ojibwe settled that area and, and lived there before the white men came. So I'm going to move back a little bit to the ghosts now because um, Fern doesn't have your choice of not booking the room. She herself believes that there is a ghost on the ship and it comes to visit her at night. Yes. Uh, and I will, I will tell you that I had an encounter with a ghost at the Island Inn on Ocracoke Island, which is part of Cape Hatteras National Seashore. And the ghost at the Island Inn did to me exactly what the ghost does to Fern. But of course, this ghost at the Island Inn is fairly well known. The identity of the ghost is fairly well known uh, amongst the people who live on the island. And her business was not with me. She just happened to haunt two rooms at the Island Inn. And I would have thought I had imagined it or dreamed it if I hadn't come down to the lobby the next morning and the desk clerk took one look at my face and said, would you like to change rooms? <laughs> and so I did, and the ghost never bothered me again. But this, this ghost was supposedly murdered by her husband, who was the uh, manager of the island inn. And so even though Fern's ghost does the same thing to her, Fern's ghost has a completely different identity because Mrs. Godfrey from Ocracoke Island would have no business with Fern or a ship on the Great Lakes. And as I say... I was many, many, many drafts into the novel before I realized who the ghost was and what the ghost wanted. How was that experience for you? Were you terrified? 
You know, surprisingly, I was not terrified, but I was very uneasy, and it certainly made for a sleepless night. Um, did you have anything else that you wanted to say about Fern as an older woman? I I don't want to give too much away, and so I. But I'm really curious as to how her perspective influences even the early stages of the story. The way I see the story is that it's really about how this plucky, adventurous little girl who, as a result of her experience on the ship, wants to grow up to be a sailor, but of course can't because the opportunity just isn't there for a woman born in 1931. Uh, it's about how such a lively little girl grows up to be a woman who can't fully engage with her adult life as a result of what happens on the ship and just even the general disappointment of realizing how limited opportunities for women were at the time. So what would you like readers to take away from Across the Great Lake? Well, I, I would like for them to enjoy the story and understand how the past can haunt us in adulthood. But I'd also like for readers who aren't familiar with the area or the history of the uh, railroad car series to take away a little knowledge. And what about you? Are you writing on something else now? I'm working on a memoir that is focused primarily on my mother's life. So you're going back in a, a kind of loop to that original interruption of your writing career. <laughs> in many ways, yes. Yes. Uh, and I, I've done some genealogical research uh, for it uh, because she didn't know much about her own family. Her, her mother died when she was seven, and she had no memory of her mother, which... Uh, was probably influential in my choosing to make Fern young enough not to have any memory of her mother when, when she was an adult. And this weighed very heavily on my mother. So I did quite a bit of uh, research, and I didn't find out that much about her family, except that she resented her mother's family for not coming forward and doing something to... Um, help or take the six children that my mother left or that my grandmother left behind. And what she didn't know is that they were all dead by then. And so she carried this tremendous resentment against these people who had died before they were able to do what she felt they should have done. That's such a tragic story. Yeah, she, she had a hard life. So thank you so much for spending your time with us today. And uh, I want to encourage my listeners to go out and read your beautiful book. Um, it's very um, lyrically written and very compelling. And the characters are, um, are fascinating, I think. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate talking with you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. 
And today I've been talking with Lee Zacharias about Across the Great Lake. Find out more about her at www.leezacharias.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfit. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing 